Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. Because first we need to discuss briefly what fluid resuscitation is in these patients with sepsis and septic shock, and why we're even giving fluids. Now, the purpose of fluid resuscitation is to increase venous return and stroke volume and ultimately increase oxygen delivery, which is compromised in patients presenting with sepsis and septic shock. I know we're all familiar with the Frank Starling curve on the right-hand side of the slide, and in patients with um, the patients with this presentation who are on the ascending limb of the Frank Starling curve, the increased venous return results in an increase in stroke volume and cardiac index, which will improve hemodynamics in these patients and this patient population with septic shock. However, what's exceptionally difficult to know is where patients lie on this curve. And it's important to know this because fluid administration serves no useful purpose in those patients whose stroke volume fails to increase following a fluid challenge. So in these patients, fluid administration may actually be harmful, which is what has been talked about throughout this talk. And we will, well, again, we'll expand on that more throughout my talk. In fact, clinical studies have consistently demonstrated that less than 50% of hemodynamically unstable patients are fluid responders. So it's very important to carefully consider if it's safe to give patients fluids before administering them. But in spite of these concepts, let's look at what the guidelines say. The 2016 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines state that sepsis and septic shock are medical emergencies, and they recommend treatment and resuscitation immediately. They also recommend that at least 30 milliliters per kilo of IV crystalloid fluid be given within the first three hours of presentation. And then finally, they recommend any additional fluids be guided by frequent reassessment of hemodynamic status. In addition to the aforementioned recommendations, they also recommend care of patients with sepsis and septic shock be completed in bundles, so three and six hour bundles, meaning that within three hours of identification, a lactate and blood culture should be drawn, antibiotics administered, and in patients with hypotension or a lactate greater than or equal to four, 30 milliliters per kilo of crystalloids should be administered. Now, data for this 30 milliliter per kilo recommendation is largely driven by historic precedent and the survival advantage that was demonstrated in the early goal-directed therapy um, original trial by Rivers, published in 2001, that Rob briefly re uh, referenced. The Rivers study evaluated this, what was at the time, a novel concept of early goal-directed therapy, um, including antimicrobials, fluids targeted to a goal CVP, among many other protocolized interventions, some that Rob already discussed. From a fluid perspective, though, this study provided 500 ml boluses of crystalloid for an average volume of 30 milliliters per kilo in the six hours of the intervention arm of the study. And with this, they found a significant reduction in mortality associated with early goal-directed therapy as a whole. 
However, an element of controversy does exist as to what specific aspects of this bundle of therapy confer a survival benefit. But regardless, this study is really where the 30 milliliter per kilo recommendation came from because there was such a profound mortality benefit um, seen in these patients and they received about on average 30 milliliters per kilo. Now after Rivers, three RCTs came out in 2014 and 2015, Process, Arise, and Promise, all of which attempted to replicate findings of the Rivers trial and simplify the strategy of the therapeutic intervention and protocols utilized. Each of these three studies found no global difference in clinical outcomes when comparing their protocolized early goal-directed therapy to the standard of care. What this likely means, though, is that the standard of care shifted after the Rivers study, and by 2014, protocolizing care was no longer needed to improve outcomes. Additionally, you can see that with process, arise, and promise, even though patients also received around 20 to 30 milliliters per kilo of fluid, Cumulative fluid balance substantially decreased after the initial resuscitation period was completed when compared to the reverse trial. Ultimately, though, what these trials don't tell us is whether or not the 30 milliliter per kilo bolus is the appropriate dose of fluids to give patients with sepsis and septic shock. But if you will recall, the surviving sepsis guidelines note the 30 milliliter per kilo recommendation as a strong recommendation, but does lament it has low quality of evidence to support it. So that must mean that there's some evidence, right? Well, kind of. So this recommendation is actually made as a result of observational trials that evaluated the three and six hour bundles that I previously discussed. More than one trial showed a significant improvement in hospital mortality associated with increased bundle compliance depicted in the graphs on the slide, showing that over time, in one evaluation at least, bundle compliance increased, and during that time frame, mortality decreased. However, again, these evaluations do not tease out specifically the fluid restriction and 30 milliliter per kilo recommendation. Regardless, the surviving sepsis guidelines use this as their crux to support this recommendation of 30 milliliters per kilo as it's within the bundle components. And again, even though one of these evaluations notes only 56.7% compliance with that fluid component specifically, and a 2017 meta-analysis revealed no association between IV fluid volume within six hours and mortality. So really what this ends up turning into is a balancing act of the data. And it's difficult to do because we have data showing that bundle compliance improves mortality and this bundle includes the 30 milliliter per kilo bolus. However, we have no definitive data evaluating that specific dose even as the primary outcome. And again, kind of like what I talked about earlier, another evaluation in the ED found that time to fluid bolus was not associated with mortality. And additionally, as Rob has talked about, we have increasing evidence showing that high volumes of resuscitation or cumulative fluid balance is associated with increased mortality. You can see one such study on the graph on the right-hand side of the slide, showing that as the volume of fluids administered on day one increased, overall and predictive mortality also significantly increased. I do want to make mention, though, and point out, though, that this was a retrospective observational database study that did not have the ability to take into account severity of illness or body weight, which can impact the internal validity of these results. What we need is prospective data, and we have some of that. 
In fact, two prospective studies really raised alarm, though, about initial fluid resuscitation in patients with septic shock. In 2011, the FEAST study in African pediatric patients showed that initial resuscitation with a 20 to 40 milliliter per kilo bolus given over one hour at the time of admission, compared to no bolus, was associated with a significantly higher risk of death at 28 days. A subsequent trial in 2017 in Zambia randomized patients to either an initial two liter bolus of crystalloids within one hour, followed by two liters over the next four hours, and then compared this to usual care. And what they found was also a significant increase in the risk of in-hospital mortality with this sepsis protocol compared to their usual care. Now, these results raise red flags regarding initial resuscitation in patients with sepsis and septic shock. However, I do want to point out two things that should be considered with these studies. First, the FEAST trial was a primarily pediatric patient population, and both studies were conducted in resource-limited settings with infectious sources that vary very greatly from what we typically see here in the U.S., as they mostly saw malaria and tuberculosis in those studies. And this can result in some questionable external validity. What I want to reemphasize, though, is that to date, there has not been a clinical trial that has evaluated specifically the use of 30 milliliters per kilo for the initial fluid resuscitation compared to other dosing regimens or even no bolus in patients, um, adult patients with septic shock. But in spite of this, and in spite of the literature that I just mentioned, raising concerns with this strategy, the surviving sepsis guidelines still recommend 30 milliliters per kilo in patients with sepsis-induced hypoperfusion. And all of this just leaves us with a lot of questions. So is 30 milliliters per kilo the magic number? What is the most appropriate weight to utilize for this dose? And then finally, should we be utilizing this one-size-fits-all approach to resuscitation, or should we be evaluating something like fluid responsiveness to determine if patients need additional fluids? So now I'm going to put aside the bundle components in this 30 milliliter per kilo recommendation that I just keep going on and on about. And we talked earlier that fluids should only be given with the goal of increasing cardiac output and oxygen delivery. Therefore, fluids should only be given if inadequate effective organ perfusion caused by inadequate cardiac output is occurring and if the patient is fluid responsive. So fluid responsiveness is defined as at least a 10 to 15% increase in cardiac output after fluid administration. This is best assessed by giving a fluid challenge and then evaluating the response. But a change in blood pressure is not a reliable indicator of cardiac output response to a fluid challenge. What you need is an assessment of cardiac output change. And the ideal method of this assessment is to utilize a marker that doesn't require fluid administration. And remember, it's been consistently shown that um, about 50% of patients with sepsis are fluid responsive. But you can actually see from the graph on the slide that over time, this rate actually reduces. And by four hours after randomization in the Andromeda shock trial, only 11% of patients were fluid responsive. So there's several ways in which we can assess fluid responsiveness. So there's static and dynamic markers. The static markers include central venous pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. 
These markers may be useful to differentiate shock states, but as you can see, they have at best around a 50% positive predictive value for determining fluid responsiveness, making them inappropriate markers. There's also then dynamic markers that can be utilized to assess fluid responsiveness, and this includes pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, inferior vena cava collapsibility, and then the passive leg race test. I'm going to explain these a little bit more in detail, but in general, know that these markers better predict fluid responsiveness and are the recommended strategy for evaluating this. These dynamic markers rely on heart-lung interactions in mechanically ventilated patients. Numerous studies have consistently demonstrated that the magnitude of respiratory variation of stroke volume predicts fluid responsiveness with great accuracy in mechanically ventilated patients. The limitation to these markers, though specifically pulse pressure variation and stroke volume variation, is that they do require a measurement of stroke volume, typically through the utilization of an arterial pulse pressure waveform analysis or other devices. Now, as mentioned before, these markers better predict fluid responsiveness in comparison to CVP and wedge pressure. And patients then are considered to be fluid responsive if they have a pulse pressure variation greater than 12.5%, a stroke volume variation greater than 11.6%, or IVC collapsibility seen on echo more than 16%. Additionally, a passive leg raise test can be utilized as it rapidly displaces about 500 or 300 millimeters of venous blood to the chest, transiently increasing preload. But again, this also requires a method of evaluating stroke volume, but if the stroke volume increases by more than 10%, the patient is then deemed to be fluid responsive. Now, it's important to note some assumptions that need to be met in order to appropriately utilize these markers. Pulse pressure variation and stroke volume variation require the patient to be in normal sinus rhythm with no valvular abnormalities or dysfunctions, and they must have no spontaneous breaths with a tidal volume of at least 8 milliliters per kilo or more, or they're unreliable. The passive leg raise test does not require mechanical ventilation, but as mentioned earlier, as with all of these dynamic markers, a method for evaluating cardiac output is required. Unfortunately, these tests are not often done, and the recently published Volume Chaser study showed that of over 1,600 patients, only 39% even had any type of physiologic assessment done to evaluate fluid responsiveness. Overall, there is unfortunately really little guidance on how to incorporate these markers into our practice, particularly in the early resuscitation period of patients with sepsis or septic shock. But there was one recent evaluation of the passive leg raise test in this population called the FRESH trial that I do want to briefly touch on. So this trial was a prospective multi-center randomized control trial at 13 hospitals in the U.S. and U.K., Patients were randomized either, the, either to usual care or protocolized resuscitation, which included assessment of vol volume responsiveness and fluid responsiveness with the passive leg raise test before fluid bolus or increase in vasopressors occurred. Fluids were given if the passive leg raise test revealed fluid responsiveness, um, otherwise vasopressors were then titrated. Patients who received the passive leg raise test guided resuscitation had a significantly lower fluid balance at 72 hours or ICU discharge with a 1.4 liter reduction in fluid balance. Additionally, they had a significant reduction in renal replacement therapy requirements and mechanical ventilation needs. But no difference in mortality at 30 days was seen. And it could just be due to the overall low number of patients included in this evaluation. 
but this really was one of the first trials to utilize the passive leg raise test in this patient population and hopefully is going to start paving the way for integrating these dynamic markers more into our practice. Now, why all of this matters and what I'm sure we're all very familiar with are the risks associated with excessive fluid administration, which again, Rob alluded to. So these include, but are not limited to, fluid overload, endothelial glycocalyx damage, organ dysfunction or failure, intra-abdominal hypertension, renal replacement and therapy need, respiratory failure, and finally, there have been many studies, some of which we will touch on briefly, that have shown an association between a fluid balance, positive fluid balance and increased mortality. And I'll just nod back to Rob and say edema, edema, edema. Now, because of these risks, it's not surprising that patients with congestive heart failure, chronic kidney disease, or end-stage renal disease, and those with cirrhosis, often receive less fluids and typically receive fluids later in their course of shock. This being due to concerns of worsening heart failure and development of respiratory depression from fluid use. However, it's important to note that no trial to date has actually shown worse outcomes with the initial fluid bolus in any of these patient populations. Um, and in fact, one trial actually evaluated this population, primarily a heart failure population, and compared outcomes of patients who received the standard 30 milliliter per kilo bolus to those who received less and showed similar rates of intubation within 72 hours of bolus receipt and similar rates of hospital mortality, indicating that it may not be necessary to, con to conserve, uh, be very conservative in patients with these comorbid conditions just because of the fear of fluid overload. Although now we don't have data evaluating the initial dose, again, like I've talked about in patients with septic shock, there have been several recent randomized control trials evaluating a more restricted fluid approach in this patient population. So first, the CLASSICS trial, which is currently underway, but in 2016 did at least publish a pilot feasibility study that looked at patients who already received at least 30 milliliters per kilo of ideal body weight of fluid in the prior six hours and then compared this to a restricted fluid approach and the standard of care. Results showed that patients randomized to the restricted fluid arm um, had uh, lower, lower volumes of resuscitation fluid in the first five days, but no other significant differences. And maybe this was due to low number of patients. But in 2018, then the REFRESH pilot study was published, which randomized patients in the emergency room with hypotension from sepsis, either to a restricted fluid protocol with early vasopressors, or then compared to the standard of care. About 100 patients were included, and again, similar to the CLASSICS trial, the main difference in outcomes was lower total volume of fluids administered in the restricted fluid arm. And then finally, again, in 2019, the RIFS study was published, also evaluating a restricted fluid approach versus the standard of care, and also similarly showed a lower total volume of fluids administered in the restricted fluid arm compared to usual care. Now, these are just three of the studies, but the three largest studies that have been conducted evaluating this clinical question to date. And when combined in a meta-analysis, there was no significant difference detected in mortality when comparing this restricted fluid arm to the standard of care or the liberal fluid arm. But I do wanna note that don't give up hope, these studies were very heterogeneous in the approach they took to restricting fluids, making evaluating them simultaneously kind of difficult. And there are still overall a low number of patients, so this could be a power issue. And as you can see, the point estimate does favor lower total volume, it just doesn't meet statistical significance. 
But clearly this question is still not fully answered and there are two large clinical trials underway. So the CLOVERS trial plans to enroll over 2,300 patients and randomize those patients with persistent hypotension after one to three liters of crystalloid to either early vasopressors or early fluids. And then the classic study, which I just discussed, is, is still enrolling for their full study and plans to enroll over 1,500 patients, again, randomized to either this restricted fluid approach or the standard of care. But the question still remains, in light of all of that I discussed, how do we apply this to practice in our patients? Well, the answer becomes pretty simple when you take into account the, the federally mandated Centers for Medicare and Medicaid SEP1 core measure, which went into place October of 2015, which requires that U.S. hospitals report compliance rates with this core measure. The three and six hour bundles that I previously discussed, including that component, that fluid component of 30 milliliters per kilo of crystalloid, must be completed for all patients with sepsis and persistent hypotension or a lactate greater than or equal to four. And there's only one exclusion for this fluid component, and that's patients with LVAD. No other ex uh, exclusions exist. And this dose can unfortunately not be adjusted based on fluid responsiveness or those dynamic markers if they're assessed. So because of this, and until we have further data and further updates from our guidelines and the federally mandated core measure, this does leave us requiring the administration of 30 milliliters per kilo in all patients with septic shock who are persistently hypotensive or have hyperlactinemia. So now to revisit our patient case of SS, again, our 39-year-old male with a tooth abscess who presented after receipt of antibiotics and one liter of normal saline that had minimal blood pressure response to this and a lactate of 6.5, how much fluids would you recommend for this patient? And in this case, C is the correct answer from a CMS and core measure standpoint and is probably what should be done in this patient. But for the provider at the bedside, it is very reasonable to need more information to be able to make an individualized plan for this patient by evaluating fluid responsiveness with something like those dynamic markers like pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, or even a passive leg raise test if they can be done. And at that point, then determine if further fluids are indicated based on those results. To conclude and for some takeaways, to date, no study has supported or refuted the guideline recommendations of 30 milliliters per kilo in patients with septic shock, and the CMS-mandated SEP1 core measure still recommends 30 milliliter per kilo bolus in all patients with persistent hypotension. But regardless, excessive fluids should be avoided and fluid responsiveness should be assessed in all patients after the initial 30 milliliter per kilo bolus to guide additional fluid receipts. Now this concludes this portion of my talk, and with that, I'm gonna move right into the next portion of this panel, which focuses on the de-resuscitation phase of treating critically ill patients. By the end of this presentation, you should be able to describe the phases of fluid administration in critically ill patients, discuss approaches to passive de-resuscitation with fluid restriction and active de-resuscitation and then determine an appropriate regimen for diuresing critically ill patients with a positive fluid balance. Now, to begin, I want to again revisit the patient case that we've been discussing throughout today's talk. So SS, our 39-year-old male with a tooth abscess. For a refresher, he was transferred to the ICU with concerns for sepsis. Now, in the ICU, his blood cultures come back positive with MRSA, 
and on day three of his ICU stay, he remains on vancomycin. His shock has resolved, but he's now an AKI with reduced urine output, and he's net positive seven liters since admission. On rounds as a team, you discuss his fluid balance, and at this point, what recommendations would you make to your team regarding his fluid balance? Would you not adjust his plan and continue the course? Assess fluid responsiveness to determine if further fluids are warranted. Administer one liter of fluids. Initiate maintenance fluids at 30 milliliter per hour or initiate active diuresis with furosemide. But before we get into this plan, I wanna discuss the different phases of fluid administration. On the slide is one of the proposed processes and timelines that occurs in these patients, the ROSE or R-O-S-E phases. First, we have the resuscitation phase, during which fluids are administered quickly as a bolus and can be life-saving. Treatment in this phase is referred to as salvage or rescue treatment. This is what we had been focusing on in the prior portion of today's talk. The goal is early, adequate, directed fluid management and fluid balance must be positive. Then, during the optimization phase, the situation is still unstable, but the patient is no longer in immediate life-threatening danger, but rather in a state of compensated shock. And at this point, any additional fluids um, that, should, that are given should be given cautiously and titrated with the aim of optimizing cardiac function to improve tissue perfusion. Since the goal is to maintain tissue perfusion, fluid balance should go from positive to neutral. This is where fluid responsiveness can be utilized to individualize and optimize care. The third phase is the stabilization phase. This phase focuses on organ support and reflects the point at which a patient is in a stable, steady state in which fluid therapy is now only used for ongoing maintenance and replacement in the setting of normal fluid losses. This phase is now marked by the absence of shock or imminent threat of shock. And then finally, the evacuation phase, where two things can happen. Either the patient further recovers and enters the flow phase spontaneously with passive evacuation of the excess fluids that have been given, or what happens in many ICU patients, they remain in this no-flow state with ongoing fluid accumulation due to capillary leak. At this stage, further fluid administration becomes harmful to the patient. Fluids will then need to be actively removed during the following days to weeks in order to support organ recovery. The goal here will be to promote a negative fluid balance by mobilizing accumulated fluids with a late goal-directed fluid removal strategy, also called or referred to as de-resuscitation. Now let's see what this looks like in a fluid balance perspective form. So you can see the four rows phases on the slide and how fluid balance increases in the resuscitation phase, plateaus in the optimization and stabilization phase, and then in the evacuation phase, fluid balance should be on the downward trend with a goal to meet net negative or even fluid balance for the admission. As we discussed in the last portion of this panel, the surviving sepsis guidelines recommend a fluid challenge technique be applied where fluid administration is continued as long as hemodynamic factors continue to improve, and they do not recommend that fluids be given beyond initial resuscitation without some estimate of a positive response to their use. But when it comes to de-resuscitating patients or what to do after the initial resuscitation period, they're relatively silent and there's a lack of guidance. 
To review from the last session, there are definite and known risks to excessive fluid administration. And as we've discussed, there have been several studies that have found an association between positive fluid balance and increased mortality. In fact, one study that we didn't have time to discuss fully in the last session, a meta-analysis that was published in 2014, included almost 20,000 patients and evaluated the association between fluid balance and outcomes and found that non-survivors had a higher cumulative fluid balance by day seven of their ICU stay compared to survivors. Additionally, when evaluating studies that included some type of an intervention to obtain either a negative or neutral cumulative fluid balance after the third day of the ICU stay, and then compared this to the usual care, or you can call this a restricted versus a liberal fluid management strategy, this restricted management strategy was independently associated with a reduced odds of mortality in this specific study. But because of these findings, this concept of de-resuscitation has become one of the new hot topics of the past few years. Now we've alluded to it, but what actually is de-resuscitation? Well, it specifically refers to late conservative fluid management or passive de-resuscitation and late goal-directed fluid removal or active de-resuscitation. Passive de-resuscitation describes a moderate fluid management strategy following the initial treatment in order to avoid or reverse fluid overload. Whereas active de-resuscitation involves, involves aggressive and active fluid removal using diuretics and renal replacement therapy with net ultrafiltration. Both of these strategies are characterized by the discontinuation of invasive therapies and a transition to a negative fluid balance. De-resuscitation can be considered and should be thought about after about six hours after the initial resuscitation, or at least once the patient is stabilized and no longer fluid responsive. Additionally, it should be considered when fluid accumulation and overload negatively impact end organ function. De-resuscitation can be thought of as mandatory in cases of a positive cumulative fluid balance in combination with poor oxygenation, like with a P to F ratio less than 200. It can also be thought of as mandatory in settings of increased capillary leak, increased intra-abdominal pressure, and low abdominal perfusion pressure. As mentioned before, at a minimum, this approach should target either neutral, net even, or negative fluid balance. So first, let's discuss passive de-resuscitation. Now to do this, specific strategies that should be considered and utilized include minimizing maintenance fluids, concentrating IV medications as you're able to, concentrating tube feeds, hopefully in conversation with dietitian or nutrition, converting IV medications to oral as soon as you're able, and to consider the utilization of IV push medications rather than infusions or IV piggybacks if you're able to. And we'll talk about some of these concepts a little more thoroughly. Now, not surprising, pharmacists can aid significantly in reducing and minimizing fluid intake from medication and fluid sources, as these sources of fluid intake are often overlooked or not appreciated. One retrospective study out of Belgium looked at almost 15,000 patients and assessed the impact of the different fluid sources on cumulative fluid balance you can see the overall cumulative fluid balance and how this is primarily driven by medications represented by the yellow bar. 
and also nutrition and oral fluids represented by the dark blue bar. And interestingly, resuscitation fluids themselves make up only a small portion of the drivers of the cumulative fluid balance represented by the purple bar. This study evaluated the fluid components for the first five days of ICU admission, and you can say, see that at each day, the amount of resuscitation fluids that drive total fluid balance reduced, while the amount of medications accounting for fluid balance increased. I think this is important to note because I feel that this is a common misconception that fluid bolus volumes drive much of the fluid balance, but it's actually our other ancillary medications and even nutrition that makes up most of the fluid balance to our patients. This is a factor that can and should be addressed in every patient every day, and pharmacists can play a very key role in this area. We know that a positive fluid balance is associated with increased mortality, and I've talked about this ad nauseum throughout today's whole talk. And when evaluating the clinical trials, most of which I discussed in the last session that actually compared a conservative fluid management strategy with a liberal fluid strategy, mostly through fluid restriction, we do know that overall fluid balance is reduced. But what I didn't mention before was that there's also an overall benefit in increased ventilator-free days that favored this conservative fluid balance arm. So what we're seeing here is improvement in morbidity outcomes when cumulative fluid balance is reduced. Now again, though, as I mentioned in the last session, this approach of a conservative fluid strategy has not really been associated with mortality, even though we do know that fluid balance itself is associated with mortality. And again, it's likely just because of the small number of patients included in the trials evaluating this question. And the methods that fluids were conserved or restricted was also very heterogeneous, making the um, comparison of all of these trials together pretty difficult. But again, don't forget that that point estimate does favor the restricted approach. Now I wanna move on to the concept of active deresuscitation. Active deresuscitation, specifically with the use of protocolized diuresis, was first evaluated in the FACT and FACT light trials in patients with acute lung injury and ARDS. The FACT protocol is actually a fairly complex protocol that takes into account CVP or wedge pressure, MAP, and vasopressor need, urine output, cardiac index, as well as capillary refill time. Now, based on all of these factors, recommendations are made to either provide fluids, vasopressors, dobutamine, or furosemide. Then in 2015, FACT Light was published, which simplified the protocol used in FACT and only utilized CVP, urine output, and MAP to target interventions that included fluid administration and diuresis with furosemide. Results of these studies when comparing both approaches to the liberal fluid utilization arm showed that both FACT and FACT-LIGHT significantly reduced ventilator-free days and ICU-free days. There was also a numeric reduction in mortality with these conservative approaches. And then when comparing FACT to FACT-LIGHT, there was no difference in clinical outcomes detected, indicating that the simpler version of the deresuscitation protocol with FACT-LIGHT was just as efficacious as the complex one from FACT. Now, when asking this clinical question in patients with shock, one retrospective propensity score matched evaluation of patients who received vasopressors within 48 hours after ICU admission compared those who received a diuretic, again within 48 hours after ICU admission, 
for those who did not receive a diuretic. They included almost 8,000 patients and were able to match about, a, about 1,400 patients in each group. They found that fluid balance was significantly lower in those who received diuretics, urine output was higher, and hospital mortality was actually lower in those who received diuretics compared to those who did not receive diuretics, indicating that it's likely safe and beneficial to start initiating active de-resuscitation within 48 hours of ICU admission and shock onset. And then, even more recently, this question was also evaluated in the context of a diuretic protocol initiated in one center's medical ICU. This was then evaluated as a pre-post um, single center pilot study of adult patients admitted to that MICU who required mechanical ventilation with either clinical signs of volume overload or any positive fluid cumulative balance since hospital admission. In the pre-group, patients received diuresis per clinician discretion for a two-year period. This was then compared to the post-group who received the diuretic protocol. Now, this protocol-guided diuresis was based on patient-specific daily fluid balance goals with recommendations for dosing furosemide in patients. So those with prior furosemide exposure had a double of their dose of the home regimen that they would get. And then in patients that had no known furosemide exposure, or those who were diuretic naive, the dose was then based on their renal function with higher initial doses being prescribed to patients with reduced kidney function. Now, this is appropriate and ensures that the drug is able to get to the site of action in the ascending limb of the loop of Henley. And the um, recommendations for those dosing are listed for you on the slide. Now, you can see that after the protocol was implemented, there was a significant reduction in 72-hour fluid balance by two liters in the patients who received this protocol. Additionally, there was a significant reduction in in-hospital mortality favoring those who received the protocol. Now, of note, there, these findings were also coupled with an increase in adverse events um, that was defined as a rise in serum creatinine, hypokalemia, hypernatremia, and metabolic acidosis. Now, overall, when it comes to de-resuscitation, approaches that can and should be utilized include fluid restriction, including both medications and maintenance fluids, assessing fluid responsiveness if considering administering fluids, an active de-resuscitation with diuresis or ultrafiltration is able. When diuresis is to be provided, give either double the patient's home dose, or if they're diuretic naive, then understand that higher doses will be required for those with poor renal function. Urine output should be monitored closely, and if no response to the first dose, the dose should then be doubled up to a max dose of 200 milligrams. And I like the dosing recommendations provided in the pilot study that I talked about that are, again, located here for you on the slide. Now, as patients are getting de-resuscitated, it is important to note the risks associated with this approach. This was seen, as I just mentioned, in the pre-post study of the diuresis protocol. These risks include AKI development, electrolyte abnormalities, and hypotension. In fact, when looking at the active de-resuscitation studies that we talked about, you can see that there were higher rates of AKI development in two of the three studies that we discussed. Now, this finding could be twofold, and what it likely indicates is the outcome that you're targeting. So serum creatinine may be increasing because you're pulling off that excess fluid and revealing their actual renal function. So it might not be that they're in AKI, but that number is just going up. 
Or it could be that the patients may be getting pushed too far to the negative side. But again, it's more likely the former. And then to go along with that, when monitoring patients who are getting de-resuscitated, it is important to monitor urine output for response and to treat their cumulative fluid balance both, both as a marker for response to diuresis and to aid in adjustment of diuretic doses. The goal, as we discussed, is to aim for a net negative or neutral fluid balance without causing organ damage or AKI, which leads to the next point, which is discuss when to ease up on de-resuscitation. One way in which to do this would be to monitor for fluid responsiveness, particularly if patients become hypotensive, and to continue to remove fluid as the patient is deemed non-responsive by dynamic markers. If the patient is fluid responsive or becomes fluid responsive, particularly if the patient is hypotensive as well, aggressive active de-resuscitation should be held. And then as I mentioned, if organ damage is occurring, or if true AKI develops due to excessive volume depletion, de-resuscitation should be held. But note again that an increase in serum creatinine alone without signs of volume depletion doesn't necessarily mean the diuretic is causing harm and it could actually be reflecting your intended goal. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.